European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 36, Issue 30, Focus Issue on Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lusher. Novel Aspects of Heart Failure, from Combined Neurohormonal Blockade to Embryonic Stem Cells. Neurohormones are crucial regulators of the cardiovascular system. In particular, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and the natriuretic peptides. Their plasma levels are regulated by physiological stimuli, as well as activating and inactivating enzymes. Neprilysin is a neutral endopeptidase, and its inhibition increases bioavailability of natriuretic peptides, bradykanin and substance P, resulting in natriuretic vasodilatory and anti-proliferative effects. In concert, they lower blood pressure and unload the heart. LCZ696, or Valsartan slash is a first-in-class combined angiotensin-2 receptor and neprilysin inhibitor, with likely indications in heart failure and hypertension. In this issue, Franz Messerly from the St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center and Columbia University in New York, provides a very timely review on the role of neprilysin inhibitor combinations in hypertension, insights from hypertension and heart failure trials. Messily discusses the mechanisms of action, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of the novel drug, as well as its efficacy, safety and tolerability in hypertension based on available trial information. Furthermore, he tries to identify areas of research in hypertension in which future trials with LCZ696 would be useful. Whether or not inhibition of neprilysin is truly associated with unwanted effects on beta amyloid in brain tissue remains to be determined. Besides neurohormones, the sympathetic nervous system is another essential modulator of cardiovascular function. Cardiovascular autonomic imbalance as it occurs in heart failure, has adverse effects on symptoms as well as cardiac, renal, and immune function, exercise capacity, life expectancy, and mode of death. A second clinical review entitled The Sympathetic-Parasympathetic Imbalance in Heart Failure with Reduced Ejection Fraction by John S. Flores and colleagues from the Toronto General and Mount Sinai Hospitals in Canada summarizes current knowledge on the disbalance of parasympathetic and sympathetic circulatory control in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and its clinical and prognostic implications. Further, the authors demonstrate the patient-specific nature of abnormalities underlying this common phenotype and illustrate how such variation provides opportunities to improve or restore normal sympathetic or parasympathetic balance through personalized drug or device therapy. Acute heart failure is associated with a high mortality, in spite of modern management in which emergency physicians, cardiologists, intensivists, nurses and other healthcare providers cooperate for optimal outcome. However, many treatment decisions are rather opinion than evidence-based. In a comprehensive current opinion paper entitled Recommendations on Pre-Hospital and Early Hospital Management of Acute Heart Failure, a consensus paper from the Heart Failure Association of the European Society of Cardiology, the European Society of Emergency Medicine, and the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine, short version. 
Alexandre Mabaza from the Hôpital Laribazière in Paris, France, and colleagues provide guidance to practicing physicians and nurses on how to manage acute heart failure in the pre-hospital and hospital setting. Criteria of hospitalization and discharge and gaps in knowledge and management are discussed in the hope of further homogenizing practice in the future. Cardiac resynchronization therapy, CRT, has revolutionized the treatment of patients with chronic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and has become a cornerstone in the management of severe heart failure with a wide QRS complex. In ECHO CRT, a randomized trial evaluating the effect of CRT in patients with a shorter QRS duration, i.e. less than 130 milliseconds, and echocardiographic evidence of left ventricular dyssynchrony, the primary outcome of death or first hospitalization for heart failure occurred more frequently in the CRT than the control group. Thus, according to current heart failure guidelines, CRT is recommended in patients with a QRS duration of more than or equal to 120 milliseconds. There is, however, some ambiguity for clinical trial data regarding the benefit of patients with an intermediate QRS duration of 120 to 130 milliseconds. The results of this pre-specified subgroup analysis is reported in the first fast-track paper, the effect of QRS duration on cardiac resynchronization therapy in patients with a narrow QRS complex, a subgroup analysis of the ECHO-CRT trial, by Jan Steffel from the University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland. To that end, the authors compared data for CRT on versus CRT off in patients with QRS less than 120 and QRS 120 to 130 milliseconds. At baseline, the latter patients were older, more often men, had larger left ventricles, more likely of ischemic origin. No significant interaction was observed between the two groups for primary or secondary endpoints. However, on multivariable analysis, a higher risk for the primary endpoint occurred in those with a QRS of 120 to 130 milliseconds on CRT on than CRT off with a hazard ratio of 2.18. However, no significant interaction compared to patients with QRS less than 120 milliseconds randomized to CRT on versus CRT off was noted. The authors conclude that CRT provides no benefit in patients with a QRS duration of 120 to 130 milliseconds. Together with the consistent data from other trials, these results have important implications for selecting patients who will potentially benefit from CRT. These findings are further discussed in an editorial by John Cleland from the University of Hull in the United Kingdom. The second research paper on the effect of the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor LCZ696 compared with enalapril on mode of death in heart failure patients by Scott Solomon and colleagues from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, expands our knowledge on the effects of LCZ696 in patients with chronic heart failure. The authors provide additional data from a sub-analysis of the prospective comparison of ARNI with an ACE inhibitor to determine impact on global mortality and morbidity in heart failure trial, Paradigm HF study that randomized 8,399 patients with chronic heart failure 
with NYHA class 2 to 4 symptoms and an ejection fraction of 40% or less to either receiving guideline recommended medical therapy or LCZ 696. The mode of death was adjudicated by a blinded clinical endpoints committee and was cardiovascular in 81%. LCZ696 reduced the risk of cardiovascular death by 20%. Among the modes of deaths, both sudden cardiac death and death due to worsening heart failure were reduced by LCZ696 by 20% and 21% respectively compared to enalapril. Deaths attributed to other cardiovascular causes, including myocardial infarction and stroke, were infrequent and distributed evenly between groups, as were non-cardiovascular deaths. The authors conclude that LCZ696 was superior to enalapril in reducing both sudden cardiac deaths and deaths from worsening heart failure, which accounted for the majority of cardiovascular deaths. The findings are further discussed in an editorial by John Parker from the University of Toronto in Canada. Although exercise and sport is considered protective and hence is recommended by current guidelines, in rare cases it is associated with sudden death and, particularly in extreme forms, with inflammation, troponin release, ventricular dysfunction and even sudden death. Intense exercise does put disproportionate strain, particularly on the right ventricle, which may cause proarrhythmic remodeling under certain conditions. André Lagerche and colleagues from the Baker IDI Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne, Australia, address this topic in their manuscript, Exercise-Induced Right Ventricular Dysfunction is Associated with Ventricular Arrhythmias in Endurance Athletes. The authors performed exercise imaging in 17 athletes with right ventricular ventricular arrhythmias, of which half had an implantable cardiac defibrillator, ICD, 10 healthy endurance athletes, and 7 non-athletes. Echocardiographic measures included the right ventricular end-systolic pressure area ratio, right ventricular fraction area change, and systolic tricuspid annular velocity, right ventricular S. Cardiac magnetic resonance, CMR, measures, combined with invasive measurements of pulmonary and systemic artery pressures, provided left ventricular and right ventricular end-systolic pressure volume ratios, biventricular volumes, and ejection fraction at rest and during intense exercise. Resting measures of cardiac function were similar in all groups, as was left ventricular function during exercise. In contrast, Exercise-induced increases in right ventricular fraction area change, right ventricular S, and right ventricular end-systolic pressure area ratio were attenuated in endurance athletes with right ventricular arrhythmias during exercise as compared with endurance athletes and non-athletes. During exercise, CMR, decreases in right ventricular end-systolic volume and augmentation of both right ventricular ejection fraction and right ventricular systolic pressure volume ratios were significantly less in endurance athletes with right ventricular ventricular arrhythmias relative to endurance athletes and non-athletes. Receiver operator characteristic curves demonstrated that right ventricular exercise measures could accurately differentiate endurance athletes with right ventricular ventricular arrhythmias from subjects without arrhythmias. The authors conclude that among athletes with normal cardiac function at rest, exercise testing reveals right ventricular contractile dysfunction amongst athletes with right ventricular arrhythmias. 
Right ventricular stress testing shows promise as a non-invasive means of risk stratifying athletes. The issue is also discussed in a comprehensive editorial by Sanjay Sharma from St. George's University of London, United Kingdom. Regenerative medicine is a big hope also for cardiovascular patients, particularly those after acute myocardial infarction and heart failure. Although experimental results are exciting, the results of clinical trials unfortunately were largely disappointing, possibly due to stem cell dysfunction in cardiovascular patients. Thus, embryonic stem cells committed to a cardiac lineage might be more effective in improving cardiac function than those featuring an extracardiac phenotype. In the EHJ brief communication paper, Human Embryonic Stem Cell-Derived Cardiac Progenitors for Severe Heart Failure Treatment, First Clinical Case Report, Philippe Menache and colleagues from the Hôpital Européen Georges Pompidou in Paris, France, for the first time report their clinical use in a cardiac patient. The authors have developed a population of human embryonic stem cell ESC-derived cardiac progenitor cells. Undifferentiated human embryonic stem cells, I6 line, were amplified and cardiac committed by exposure to bone morphogenic protein and a fibroblast growth factor receptor inhibitor. Cells responding to these cardio-instructive cues express the cardiac transcription factor ISI1 and the stage-specific embryonic antigen SSEA1, which was then used to purify them by immunomagnetic sorting. The ISI1 plus SSEA1 plus cells were then embedded in a fibrin scaffold, which was surgically delivered onto the infarct area in a 68-year-old patient suffering from severe heart failure with a left ventricular ejection fraction of 26%. The implanted cells featured a high degree of purity, had lost the expression of SOX2 and NANOG, known markers of pluripotency, but strong expressed ISI1. The intraoperative delivery of the patch was expeditious and the postoperative course was uncomplicated. After three months, the patient has improved in symptoms and his ejection fraction rose to 36%. Of note, a new onset contractility was echocardiographically evident in the previously akinetic area treated with the cell patch. No complications such as arrhythmias, tumour formation, or immunosuppression-related adverse events were noted. The authors conclude that this first observation demonstrates the feasibility of generating a clinical-grade population of human embryonic stem cell-derived cardiac progenitors and their delivery within a tissue-engineered construct. Although premature, the patient's functional outcome is encouraging. Thus, there is reasonable hope that the stem cells may help to repair the chronically damaged myocardium in the future. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.